just not able to notice plants anymore and we don't realize how important they are for life on earth. Um, people are in touch with plants all the time because they like they eat them and they are around them but they don't know what species they are or they don't know why it's important. I think that understanding, engaging, loving plants yeah. is something that will definitely help us um, change. Välkommen till Radio Rakil FM 99,3. Du hör på Ugress med Marie Gärsta. Och idag har vi en engelsksnackande gäst, så programmet kommer att vara på engelsk. So, Irene Tashido, welcome to uh, Radio Rakil. Thank you. You are an ethnobotanist with experience uh, in medical plant research and cross-cultural analysis, qualitative um, mm. research. And you've been working a lot with cultural and biological diversity uh, with lots of very exciting projects. So I'm, I'm very happy to have you here. We're going to talk about, I think, a couple of different things, um, but uh, there's particularly one plant we'll talk about. Uh, can you tell us? Yes, so uh, I would really like to talk about Angelica, Archangelica, Kwan in Norwegian, um, because we've recently been studying it quite deeply with my colleagues at the Natural History Museum and the Museum of Cultural History. Um, I don't know if uh, all the listeners know Angelica, but it's uh, it's a plant of the uh, PAC family, so celery relative that can grow up to two meters tall, and it's uh, it's native to to the north of Europe. Um, so you can find it here in Norway, uh, both in the coast, but also in the mountains. And actually, there's two different subspecies. The Littoralis, the the coast species, mm. a subspecies, and uh, uh, and the subspecies Archangelica, which is the one uh, growing in the mountains, which is also the one that um, most of the historical or ethnobotanical records uh, that I've been working on refer to. Mm-hmm. Although the distinction is not always clear, and uh, people um, tend to call everything Angelica. And yeah. right, right, yeah. It's very, it's a very interesting plant. It's a fantastic plant. Yeah, what's what's really interesting about it is that uh, as I have been researching Nordic uh, useful plants, uh, this uh, Angelica came up as a, a multi-purpose uh, plant that was used for so many different things. I mean, um, it's, it has been used uh, as food, uh, both the root and the leaves and the stems and the seeds, uh, all parts of it. Um, but also it has been used medicinally to treat many, many uh, different uh, ailments and some of the texts consider it a, a panacea, so a plan to, to cure all illness. Yeah. Um, but then also um, it has been used as, as a tool, as, a, as flutes, because the stem sometimes it's, uh, is empty, so you can make sounds with it and you can make a um, toy for kids. Um, so in the, I think what caught my attention was that um, when you read 
um, historical texts or texts about useful plants from the beginning and mid uh, 20th century, mm. um, you just see this plant as being really prominent in Nordic culture, and yet, you know, nowadays no one seems to know anything about it. So yeah, that's uh, I think that's what caught my my attention. Definitely, definitely. So like, what what was it that they knew before that we don't know about it now? Um, so our paper actually has a very simple research question, and it's, uh, is Angelica sweet? Because lots of the old texts mention it as a sweet plant, as a yeah. plant used in desserts. Um, it was like, it's always mentioned like a treat, a delicacy, mm. and you just have these very evocative um, records of it. Um, and well, we, what we kind of ended up figuring out is that the taste is so particular that has just fallen out of what we feel that is like nice to eat and complete like you wouldn't consider it sweet nowadays because we do have sugar as a commodity that mm. kind of blinds or covers anything else up. That's true. Um, so you see for example in the in the Faroe Islands and in Iceland this was the the sweetest thing that was there before sugar. Wow, Angelica. Mm. Fantastic. At least this is what's mentioned in in some of the in some of the books. Yes, well, I mean it is a very nutritional plant and usually the sweet taste is uh connected to something that's nutritional like the mother's milk, you know, mm. sweet, it's full of nourishment. Yeah. Uh, like in traditional folk medicine, this connection is very strong, and and uh, I guess that's a quality that that belongs to Angelica. Yeah, but uh, yeah, the taste today. Uh, how would you describe the other tastes in Angelica? Um, well, um, in in our research, we actually asked some uh, some chefs um, in new Nordic cuisine restaurants how they thought the taste was. Yeah, and uh, they described it as. It's very strong and powerful and floral, also sweet, um, but also like like really strong and aromatic. Mm. Um, uh, yeah, um, and it's it's quite difficult to define, right? We don't really have the right vocabulary to describe Angelica's taste. It's true. Yeah. So uh, one of the chefs and 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 I've seen it in other places, right? People just say, well. Things taste like angelic. Angelic doesn't taste like anything else. Yeah, yeah, it's its own taste. Mm. Yeah, yeah. And uh, another interesting thing about angelic and its sweetness is that um, we know that there there are some varieties uh, specifically coming from Vos uh, in the west coast um, yes. that seem to have been semi-domesticated or. Yes. Vossakvan yeah. is the Norwegian word because kvan is the name yeah. in Norwegian, and then this variety is called Vossakvan. Yeah, mm. and and this and this variety is known to have like a higher sugar content, and the 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 leaf stalks are full rather than hollow. So yeah. there has been some kind of uh, selection process there, and it's really nice. Um, the the Nordic Gene Bank and uh, the Norwegian Seed uh, Saving Association mm. that is called Kvan as well. Yes. <laughs> they are preserving this variety and I think it's amazing and fantastic. it's fantastic there's people doing this job. Yeah, yeah. So these, uh, I didn't realize that they were more sweet, uh, the Rossa Kvan. Yeah. But I guess it makes sense. We, we like the sweet taste uh, to kind of cultivate. And, and as you just said, it's also more nutritious, right? So right. first, for a plant that you may have been using as a 
as a crop, like uh, as a food plant, mm. not only medicinally, that's something that you would want to want to get. Another aspect of uh, Angelica that I find really fascinating um, in the historical uh, literature um, in the Nordic countries is, uh, is that uh, this taste is also reflected in the smell, right? Specifically the root. I mean, the, the smell of the root is the reason why roots are used in, in different liquors and different macerations with alcohol. Um, but before, like, the smell was was the characteristic that made, that gave its medicinal power. Mm. Um, mm. Not only phytochemically, um, because it reflects, of course, that uh, the plant has some kind of um, active molecules that have an impact on the human body, but also, um, but also in terms of meaning, of cultural meaning, um, the plant, the smell of the plant and Angelica were described as, as something to keep away disease, that the smell, like, um, bef before, um, I wouldn't want to be wrong here, but I guess around 1700s, uh, 1600s, 1700s, mm. um, people believed that infectious diseases were transmitted by the air yeah. and had a bad smell. So Angelica's smell was, was perceived as a protection against mm -hmm. these infectious diseases and against death itself. So I think right. there's, uh, there's some reference in, in Iceland where it said that the smell, the strong smell of Angelica would keep the smell of death away. So wow. it was also put on top of um, doorways uh -huh. um, as a protection, like a protection uh -huh. amulet. Right. So that's like, how else could you use it as a smell? You could put it on your door, but what else you could you could also do? wear it. Right, yeah. Yeah. And would it ha do you need to have it fresh for the smell to, or, or how long could you, like, <laughs> this is maybe details that... Yeah. Uh, yes, I, I wouldn't know about that. No. Yeah. yeah. Mm. Well, I, I think that the smell is, uh, is quite powerful as well. How do you think, the, how do you experience the smell? Have you smelled, have you... <laughs> I, have, I have never smelled the root, uh -huh. so I don't know about that. Have you tasted the plant? I have tasted the plant, yeah. and I have to say it was a, yeah, it was a really strong experience, and I couldn't reach the sweetness of it. To me, it was yeah. just a very strong taste, uh -huh. and it was uh, it was very interesting because uh, our our collaborator, the um, the gardener in the in the monastic garden in in Hamar, uh, she's from Iceland, and she she mentioned that some. Some relative had a story with uh, with Angelica and tasting Angelica as a kid, and they said that the fact that you that you grow with the taste makes you appreciate it. Um, whereas they explicitly said that if you try it as an adult, it's uh, very very difficult that you will just like it. Mm. And um, Gauta Vindek, another uh, another collaborator uh, who's a chef, he also said that in a way for for people to like Angelica nowadays, he would have to prepare it in some way, like yes. cook it or yes. you know, candy it with sugar. Yeah. That yeah. we we are, yeah, we're like not able to appreciate its raw taste anymore. I guess like in cooking, it's very easy that this taste dominates the food, mm -hmm. and then you can't taste anything else. So it's nice to kind of to use it uh, a bit cautiously, just put mm -hmm. in a little bit, and not. Uh, and take over everything mm. yeah mm. so it was a strong experience for you to taste Angelica and yeah. did it remind you of anything like 
it didn't quite remind me of anything specific. It just was, it was, it just was very aromatic. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's a very aromatic plant, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Definitely. Mm. Yeah. Can you um, talk some more about this project that you're working with that uh, brought you to Angelica? Yeah, so, so Angelica is actually um, a case study of a broader project that uh, is, is running, hosted at the Natural History Museum, but also in the Museum of Cultural History, called Nordic People and Plants. Um, and this is a three-year research project funded by the Norwegian Research Council. Uh, and we've been working for a year now. And the project uh, wants to look at uh, the traditions in general of plant use in Scandinavia. The project's very broad. Mm-hmm. Um, the idea is to use different kinds of evidence that speak about plant and people relations through time and to put these different kinds of evidence in conversation because usually... Um, they are dealt with within the different disciplines, but they're not necessarily synthesized. So um, we look at archaeobotanical records, uh, we look at historical data, also um, ancient literature. So uh, our collaborator uh, or team member, um, Caroline Cesseru, she's a philologist, and so she specialized in Old Norse texts, uh, including the saga, but not only. And uh, she will work with uh, this material mm. that then will be able to compare to more recent material. Um, for example, the first um, Norwegian flora, which was written in the 1700s. And it reads very much as, ethno- as an ethnobotanical compendia. Like there's so much about how the plants were used in the 1700s. Oh, wow. Yeah, fascinating. Who who wrote it? Do we know? Uh, yes, uh, it was an archbishop, archbishop uh, Gunedis. He uh, was based yeah. in uh, Nidaros Trondheim. Yeah. Um, so he he, as far as I have read, um, he felt it was his duty to to collect information about uh, about the Norwegian flora as well, a patriotic duty, but also <laughs> describing the the wonders of God and. So, like, who did they collect from? Was it from, uh, like, from priests and men, or was it from more, like... Uh, B- both from learned men, so it could be, like, doctors. He mm. cites very much a colleague of his who sends him specimens, but also mm. peasants. Mm. Like, he mentions uh, very often, like, farmers would use this plant for so-and-so. Um, so it's a mix of different kinds of knowledge. Fantastic. In the flora. Uh, yeah. And then, of course, there's the works of Linnaeus, right? Yes. From uh, from Sweden and... Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And the north of... Uh, the whole north of, like, the Scandinavian peninsula. Yeah, like, Satme. Yeah, Satme. So, yeah, we look at these sources from the 1700s, and mm-hmm. then there is quite a lot of material from the early and mid-20th century, when different people in different Scandinavian countries uh, did this kind of folkloric compilation of information. Yeah. Over uh, uh, here in Norway. Um, and then um, there was also people in, uh, in Sweden and in Denmark. Mm. And, yeah, there's also quite a bit of material from Faroe Islands um, with one very good scholar in Uppsala.
we try to look at what um, what plants are used across, um, in which ways are they similar. Um, can we see what has happened through history with uh, plant uses? So yeah. the project itself is very broad. Yes. Um, and we have, I would say that we, we keep an eye on the diversity, right? Like just understanding the diversity of, of uses and of plants. So what use plant uses is it that you have been looking at so far? So you've mentioned medical use. Mm. The, um, the way that we work uh, is that we, we select uh, sources of different kinds of materials. And then from these sources, uh, being it books or floras or archaeological records, mm. um, we, we, we systematize the information in a way that we can compare it. And it can be any kind of use. So yeah. It can be whatever is, is written. Right. Uh, it can be medicinal, it can be food construction, yeah. crafts, um, oh, how symbolic use. Yeah, uh, yeah. yeah. Mm. Symbolic, you wouldn't call it use, but also we try to yeah. see like the meanings of right. the plants that, that are expressed in, in these sources. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, it's quite ambitious, but it's also really interesting. and uh, Definitely, yeah. and, and so good that you're doing this work. I mean, it really... It's really nice to be able to, uh, yeah, get more in touch with this mm. uh, from from like way back in time and, and also more recent, yeah, until mm. today. And, and so it seems like this is that it's the relationship between people and plants, right? Um, and I, I really want to ask. It's something I ask uh, all, my, all of my guests: is like, what? How do you feel like the relationship is between people and plants today? I don't know if this is like a biased perception because of my work, um, but I would say that most people are really uh, have lost touch with mm. the plant world. Mm. Um, some people call it plant blindness, like we're just not able to notice plants anymore and we don't realize how important they are for life on earth. Um, people are in touch with plants all the time because they like they eat them and they are around them, but they don't know what species they are or mm. they don't know why it's important mm. um, to preserve biodiversity. Mm. Um, but at the same time, I think that there are small collectives that are so engaged and that it's so fantastic the work that they do. It, yeah. it can be like the cooks or yeah. the seed savers or the Norwegian mm. Foraging Association is absolutely fantastic. And mm. there's... There's few people who are really there to like nourish these relationships and to and to keep innovating and keep traditions alive, not just as something that stays in an archive, but that yeah. is embodied. Absolutely. Yeah, fantastic. And how do you feel about the situation today? Like so you say that you feel that there's a lot of people who are out of touch, but how like how does it feel to have this understanding of the how things are? I think I'm an optimist. Mm -hmm. um, I, I guess one could one could easily um, feel quite pessimistic about the situation today. It's the Anthropocene. True. We don't know what's going to happen if we'll survive the end of the century uh, as a species. Mm. Um, I think that understanding engaging, loving plants yes. is something that will definitely help us change something. Mm. Um, so I, I don't know, I think 
for me personally, I try to to collaborate with what I do, like perhaps try to inspire people to to realize that plants are there and that they are beautiful and that they are interesting. Yes. Um, yeah, rather than perhaps uh, feel depressed. <laughs> oh, that's fantastic because yeah. you're really involved in this, right? Yeah, this is what you're working with every day. And for people, for you who are listening, like how can how can people get involved with this project, people and plants? How can they, yeah, be part of it? Yeah. So. Um, we actually uh, have a, a citizen science uh, project, two of them. Um, they are, uh, people can access them on the website. So if they search Nordic People and Plants Natural History Museum uh, of Oslo, they will be able to, to, to find it. Um, we think that people getting involved is uh, like a, a part of research that is sometimes overlooked, but that we really wanted to to try to do it mm. um, so we've put up we've put up these these two projects one of them is a transcription project there is material from nordic folklore archives at the university of oslo can remember the, this is the right translation into into english um, where uh, scholars at uio throughout the 20th century had sent questionnaires out to the Norwegian population about different cultural topics and mm. some of them refer to plants so what we have done is uh, together in collaboration with uh, with the archives to digitize them and put them online so people can can read them and help us transcribe it so just type in what's written in this in these letters um, and so at the same time people get to read about Right. Plant uses. Yeah, with uh, really old handwriting. Yes. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah um, it's definitely not easy for our generation to do that. Oh, yeah. Such uh, a different time, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And probably very beautiful as well. Yeah. Um, um, and then we, we're also trying to... We're on the process of putting up some material from the um, Norwegian Folk Museum in uh, Bygdøy. They also have a big archive with uh, lots of interesting... Uh, questionnaires and we're working on that mm -hmm. um, and then we have another citizen science project also in collaboration with uh, with the archives at UIO and uh, the Norwegian Folk Museum where we're actually asking people tell us what you know mm. um, it's a very simple questionnaire about plant use and plant knowledge uh, where you know anything is interesting I think we haven't had that much feedback or that much responses on that questionnaire because sometimes people feel like well this is not so important right I go pick berries in the summer but but that is important tell yeah. us what berries do you pick and when yeah. do you pick them and yeah. what do you do with them and why do you like doing this yeah this is so relevant um, and this is also part of this wheel of trying to keep the knowledge alive and valuing it. Absolutely. This is, is something I learned during during my PhD on medicinal plants, that people have to value what they know and, and realize that that other people value it to, mm. to kind of take pride and keep it alive. Mm, absolutely. And this is at minne.no, right? It's exactly. It's this site that's a digital museum yeah, where people can go. and yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's really nice. I think it's wonderful. 
people can just uh, share what they what they do in their daily life, what they know, even though it feels like, oh, I don't know anything. But if you sit down and just have a thing, then I, sh- I think, like, yeah, most people do totally. have uh, contact with plants. Yeah. And, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Mm. And then I wanted to ask you, like, so this program is called Uigres, which means weeds. The word weed, like, for me, it's uh, it's very broad. Like, mm. uh, it depends, uh, like, for a person who's working with forestry, then some trees will become a weed, or for a person who's working with farming, then certain plants will become a weed, um, mm. or someone with a flower garden, others will become a weed. So do you have um, a favourite weed? Um, yeah, I mean, it's, uh, as you say, like, the definition of weed is so, is so relative, right? It's just a plant that's out of place, but what's a plant out of place? Exactly. I mean, there's, there's more like a human activity out of place. Yeah, thank you so much. <laughs> um, yeah, I think, um, I cannot really think about one single weed. No, it's hard. Um, one, one plant that I really liked, um, from when I was a kid, uh, yeah. where I grew up in, in Catalonia, uh, was uh, Capsella Ursa Pastoris. Um, do you know the name in English? Because I don't uh, know. Capsella, um, is that shepherd's um, yes, purse? exactly, shepherd's yeah. purse. Yeah. Um, it's just a plant that's always there. It's like so common. And I remember yes. like just, you know, it's one of these memories from going, going for a walk with my parents. And it's just so beautiful. I think mm. like... The, the fruits are so nice and I remember as a kid I liked them very much yes, <laughs> because so they are lovely. like little hearts yeah um, so that's a that's a weed that I really like definitely and uh, and and can I just ask like did have you have you eaten it have you no not really it's just a plant that I like because I liked it when I was a kid it's a lovely plant I think here in Norway the weed that I like the most if you can call it weed is uh, the raspberries oh yes because um i actually was having this conversation with uh, with a colleague um where he's norwegian and he was saying like well we don't care about raspberries they're all over the place but uh, back uh, where i grew up you had to go really high up in the pyrenees to get raspberries so yeah. it was yeah. like yeah quite special when you were able to eat wild raspberries whereas here you can just feast on them for the whole summer right so that right. was something that i really <laughs> appreciated moving, moving here yes yeah it's true yeah yeah raspberry is fantastic so tasty mm. yeah and what do you feel like about the landscape in norway i mean it's, it's quite different right so like being here what what's I mean, in Oslo, I guess it's not very representative for Norway, but uh, mm. yeah, what do you make of it? Mm. I, I think one of the things uh, that really was uh, quite surprising when I moved up here is how, um, well, I have to say I haven't traveled that much across Norway, so no, maybe this is no. wrong, but the views that I've seen, um, the forests seem quite homogeneous compared to back at home because... Um, like in the Mediterranean, we have such a patchy landscape, right? So you have a tiny forest here and it's like yeah. mixed forest yeah. and then a tiny patch there. And you go up the mountain and the la- like the vegetation changes so much, like yeah. just a thousand meters up that you go. Like I grew up very cl- like at the foothills of the Pyrenees. Yeah. So you would have this diversity uh, really close, you know, in a, in a day you would go through so many different habitats. And, yeah. and so here it was like, wow, it's just like these vast landscapes of spruce and and birch yeah yeah it's true 
So I'm interested in this, uh, you're, you're looking at, uh, in the project, uh, at plant use, uh, like, from a long time ago and then today. Can you say any more about differences between how people use plants uh, these days as, as, as opposed to, like, the historical? I mean, I know you're just in the first year mm -hmm. of this project and it's early on, but it's, it's just really interesting. Yeah. Actually, I mean, at the moment we're working on, on another another paper that does compare um, the different usages across time, like looking at two different sources, but we're mm. at the very early stages and I, I don't really have the answer yeah. yet. Yeah. Um, but of course what you see is that um, social context, political context, economic context, cultural context defines the interaction with nature in general and plants specifically. Yeah. So all these have changed through time and we would expect like correlations um, with uh, with uh, changes in livelihoods. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And do you, uh, do you relate that to the use of Angelica, like changes in use of Angelica? Angelica was, uh, was definitely one of the vegetables of the Nordic diet for, for centuries, right? And it's not anymore. So... Mm. So, uh, I mean, there have been changes that yeah. in the use of Angelica uh, that are that are due to to socioeconomic uh, changes, mm. and uh, of course the the availability of other kinds of resources that have replaced um, local diversity. Yeah, 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 and I think it's, it's interesting, this, you know, because. Um, it was a, a big part of the diet, right? And, and it was also used as a medicine. Mm. And I think today, like, people might have heard of it as a medicine, or like some people, uh, or some people might use it as in a diet. But then uh, that combination, like that closeness between medicine and uh, and food, yeah. Yes, uh, yeah. So we, we actually uh, don't know how, like, what proportion of people's diets uh, it represented. Uh, for one, there are almost no archaeobotanical records of Angelica. There's one seat in Hedby or something from Viking Age. Uh, mm. we're, we're trying to find more records, um, but, but so far it's not one of the plants that comes at prominently in, uh, in excavations, right? So there's, uh, there's little known there. Mm -hmm. So it's very likely that, um, that people before had uh, perceived a closer relationship between medicine and, and food. Uh, this is also something that we can see nowadays with, uh, with rural populations where, you know, you change your diet when you're sick or mm. um, you add more spices or take more teas or, you know, mm. it's, very, mm. it's a very fluid uh, boundary, right? Yeah. Um, whereas perhaps in... Uh, in a kind of industrialized context, we tend to compartmentalize everything, whereas all that we do in our lives is connected in some way because we have one single body, right? Right.
you're what you're working with. Um, I don't think there's that many people in the world, although there's probably a couple. <laughs> yeah, it's a couple. <laughs> but can you tell me about like how you chose to to do what you're doing and and what that uh, process was like? Yeah, I didn't like. I didn't choose what I'm doing in a direct sense of way because so I studied biology um, and when I studied I didn't know that ethnobiology was a was a field of research uh, it was not taught in in my university it might it might have been but in a different faculty with a yeah just not part of my studies mm. um, and as a subject like a, a one subject not a real like a full yeah of course uh, Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I didn't know about it, um, and I did my master's uh, in marine ecology, and then I thought I would take a break from academia, and then at some point I was like, well, actually, I really like learning about stuff, so yeah. perhaps I'll look for a PhD, and as, as I was looking for PhDs, um, I came across a PhD on medicinal plants, um, and because in my family, my grandmother and my father have collected medicinal plants uh, always and used them at home and I thought it was such a fascinating topic and I always loved botany I took like all the possible botany subjects I could ever take like I could take in 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 the University of Barcelona Mm. um so I thought like oh my god it's so amazing like it's so fascinating that there is a PhD on that um and I applied thinking that I wouldn't get it because I didn't have the right background but well as it turns to be very few people have the right background (laughs) so so I ended up uh, getting getting the position and as I was doing my PhD I, I realized that like this is what I want to do mm. so it was more like a kind of discovery in the doing can you say more about this PhD what, what were you actually doing yeah so my PhD was uh, was about medicinal plants in Morocco and it was a project within a larger project funded by the EU where we were 15 students uh, working on medicinal plants from different disciplines. So you would have people in pharmacy and people in, in biology, like uh, botany um, and, yeah, uh, chemistry. So, um, and then other people in, like, proper anthropology. Um, so it was really, really nice to have this group of people around as I was, as I was studying, because, like, we could learn... Like different points of view and uh, different perspectives on studying the same subject. Um, yeah. And and my PhD was about um, medicinal plants in the High Atlas Mountains in in Morocco. Uh, so what I was looking at was uh, specifically how people learned and taught about plant use and why was or was not uh, medicinal plant use important uh, to to healthcare uh, there like in which ways and how was biodiversity affected by, by these relationships. And um, I was hosted there by uh, an NGO called Global Diversity Foundation um, that was, in a way, like my PhD kind of fitted in a bigger project on biocultural diversity conservation. So they were and still are doing uh, biodiversity conservation in, in Morocco, but taking local knowledge and local institutions and local perspectives very much to the core of um, applying conservation mm-hmm. action. Mm-hmm. So that was a very, very nice experience. Absolutely, yeah. Mm. 
That's fascinating. So, can you say more about like how you how do you decide that you want to con- like why? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, so that my PhD involved um, spending about roughly a year in in Morocco. Uh, I absolutely adored it. I mm. really like Moroccan people. Yeah. And and Amazigh people. Um, culturally, they're very similar to like just across the other side of the Mediterranean. So mm. I felt very like easily at home. Mm-hmm. Um, and these were the 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 community where I stayed most of the time in the mountains. It was a very very rural area, very mountainous, um, very small small village. And I was staying with a lovely family and had a, a very nice translator with whom I would walk up and down and go talk to people. So that was mm. that was really really nice, right? The nice yeah. part of uh, of this uh, work as well, just to get to know people and get to know their lives and, mm. and get to know their plants. So yeah. It's, yeah, it was a really, really nice time. Mm. And, um, yeah, and then you go home and you write about it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> then there's a lot of writing to do afterwards. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, and then when I finished my PhD, I, I continued with the, with the NGO to help them document um, ethnobotanical knowledge in a bit more depth in specific aspects that they were interested in. And then after that, I, I moved here because uh, my partner was here mm-hmm. <laughs> finishing his PhD. And I was thinking, hmm, like, what am I going to do? <laughs> yeah. How can I be an ethnobotanist in Norway? And uh, contacted uh, Annalyn, who I knew through, through the network. Um, and we just started discussing and putting mm-hmm. uh, projects together. And yeah. yeah. Great. Yeah. What's it like to be here working on this project after coming from Morocco? I mean, it's very different, maybe, or like what's... Uh... Yeah, it's, uh, it's very different, but in a way, it's the same topic. Like, uh, I still love plants and I still love people, and it's, uh, it's a discovery of uh, different plants and different people. Mm. And also that some plants are the same. And yes. uh, you know, there's yeah. also like, and some and some ways of using plants are the same. I mean, the the Mediterranean medicinal literature had a big impact here as well. That's uh, true. Through medieval herbals. So That's true. I imagine that people today uh, in Morocco have like a living tradition quite different from in Norway. Yeah. So the thing is, here in Norway, I don't work that much with the living tradition. Uh, so That's I'm true. mostly studying um, written texts. Yeah. Uh, so in that sense, the work is quite different in itself. Um, yeah, but uh, the few interviews I've done with uh, with cooks, um, it's it's a different knowledge framework, right? I mean, these people are trained in very specific ways to to think and talk about food and and plants. Um, but it's yeah, it's still really fascinating. Definitely, yeah. Mm. I don't know about you, but I feel like learning about plants is just like this lifelong, like endless thing. There's just so much, yeah. like both in cooking and in medicine and in all the other areas. Wow. Yeah, and yeah, and completely a knowledge that yeah, it's uh, not always easy to find. Um, good sources but it's uh yeah yeah there's so many perspectives and different ways thing can things can be used and done mm. Mm. yeah i think what's also fascinating is t- 
the different ways one can learn about it. So in my work, it's mostly just thinking, right? Just yeah. uh, trying to, to, you know, to, to put things together in one's head and see how they make sense. Um, but I, I really admire like em embodied knowledge, like people who don't necessarily put things into words. Um, yeah, or know how to put things into words, but that they know, they know when uh, some particular plant uh, is going to come up or fruit is going to be ripe and mm. when to best get it and where to get it. And I mean, yeah. mushroom pickers, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And uh, yeah, I admire that. Mm. Yeah, it's true. And it's also um, like one thing is to know these things, but then it's also to know like how one knows these mm. things <laughs> which is also yeah, yeah. not always so easy to be in touch like this is all from my yeah. grandmother or this is yeah and perhaps it's not important uh, different aspects are important for different people for different reasons and 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 that's and that's why you were just saying how like endless it is to learn about plants because there's all these edges to it yeah yeah definitely is there anything else you want to say? Just stay tuned. Yeah. <laughs> because uh, yeah, we're we're really we're doing lots of things within Nordic People and Plants. Um, we are a team of uh, about twenty people, between uh, professors, uh, students, uh, collaborators, um, and collaborators in a broad sense, right? Like we're collaborating with chefs and with the Nordic Foraging Association. So not not just with people inside academia, but um, but different perspectives that we're just talking um, on 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 plant knowledge and and, and plant relationships. Uh, so we're yeah we're we're doing that lots of different things. Um, uh, some activities that are gonna come up in the botanic garden related to the project in the next year, and then some publications uh, that perhaps some people would like to read. Mm. Um, yeah, and uh, yeah, all that is uh, is and will be in the website. So that's the the easy way to 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 access us. What's the website again? Can you just say? Um, yeah, so I can't remember exactly the the website, but mm. just Nordic people and plants, uh, natural history museum, yeah. University of Oslo should yeah. be should be coming up. Yeah. Well, I think it's a fantastic project, really grounded in uh, in the world here in the Nordic region. Thanks a lot. Keep up the good work. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we'll stay in touch for yeah. sure. <laughs> Definitely. And thank you for coming to Radio Rakir. Thank you. After this interview with Irena Tashador, Irena brought up a question about what we call the plants in the interview, what, like how we speak about them, what implication it has that we use those words. Like, during the last um, almost hour, through the interview, we spoke about useful plants, um, or nyttevexter it would be in, in Norwegian, that's something that's used quite a lot, um, about medicinal and edible plants, and the sort of usefulness, it's something that we might 
implies that we use we use the plants like a hairbrush or a pencil but plants they're not really just tools because they're living and the way that we engage with them it's not just kind of taking or harvesting it's also at least uh, I really hope that it in some ways can be giving or it can um, acknowledge the fact that they are living and Irena suggested that maybe in the future we could change our language or at least be aware of what words we use. One word that she suggested was um, to call them plant companions um, instead of useful plants. And I thought that was just really lovely. Um, And I guess the term plant allies is also possible. Um, And yeah, I think it's it's just a really great challenge for this programme, Ugres, um, and the way that plants are are named in future episodes um, but also uh, for you as a listener um, and how like just to reflect on how you speak about plants maybe yes yeah, so thanks a lot for that Irena that's it from us now <laughs>